Thanks for tuning in to localjobnetwork.com radio. I'm your host, Jacqueline Peterson, and you are listening to Government Compliance, where we take federal contractors and subcontractors through the current trends of affirmative action planning, equal employment opportunity, and Office of Federal Contract Compliance programs. And today we have expert Sandy Ziegler, a recognized authority on federal EEO enforcement with 25 years of experience divided equally between the EEOC and the OFCCP. Sandy, good morning and thank you for joining us today. Good morning and thank you for having me. Now, we wanted to talk with you because you recently wrote an article for the OFCCP Digest about what an EEO-1 report is, who has to file it and when, and any of the confidentiality protections that the government is required to observe. Can you just start us off by explaining what's on the report and why it's requested? Well, the EEO survey is, I mean, it's actually an EEO-1. It's a survey that's sent out by the EEOC, and the uh, EEOC and OFCCP use the results of this survey in their enforcement efforts. In general, what it is, is a form where uh, an employer will show the demographics of its incumbent workforce, so how many women, how many men, how many of each of the different minorities, and it's all done by job groups. For example, may have officials and managers or executives, so there'll be different job groups that the forum offers you, and you can use your own job groups too to uh, separate out your workforce to see where the minorities are, where the women are within your workforce. And, And you said the OFCCP uses them and the EEOC. Now, who is required to fill out the report exactly? Well, from the Department of Labor, if you're a federal contractor and you have 50 employees and 50,000 in contracts or subcontracts, purchase orders in certain financial institutions, then you're required to fill out the EEO-1. And also, in general, employers with a, 100 or more employees have to fill out the report. On the EEO-1, you can designate whether or not you're a federal contractor. I see. So that's sort of the distinction there between the DOL and the EEOC? Right. When you, you start to do business with the federal government, they can ask you to do more than they would ask a company that's not doing business with the federal government. So federal contractors uh, do have to file these reports because, you know, OFCCP uses them in a variety of ways. So speaking of when filing the report, when exactly is that due? It's due by September 30th as an annual report. So every year on or before September 30th, the contractor or employer needs to submit the form. Okay. And in regards to confidentiality protections, You know, what is the government required to observe in relation to, let's say, the EEOC? Well, the the EEOC is uh, prohibited from sharing individualized information. When when they get the EEO-1 forms from all these contractors that have the 100 or more, they can't just, you know, share the information through a Freedom of Information Act. However, there is an exception for federal contractors and OFC. So the EEOC would send a FOIA request relative to a contractor to the uh, OFCCP at the Department of Labor. And they would follow uh, their normal FOIA procedures because they don't have quite the same limitations relative to that data that EEOC has generally with respect to EEO-1 data. So the EEOC, just to kind of recap here, really cannot release that information in response to a FOIA request, but the DOL is not necessarily subject to that same requirement. So if someone wants that information, they could hypothetically request it through FOIA and get it. Well, they could, and yes, definitely they could hypothetically either get it or, or be refused it, depending on sure. how the Department of Labor responds to the request. But the information relative to federal contractors is potentially available through a formal request to the Department of Labor. Okay. In your article, you talk about Google 
and some other organizations that didn't necessarily want their statistics shared, but specifically with Google. And they, sh- they ended up sharing some of their statistics actually on their website. It was, you know, a third of its workers are female, two to three percent are Hispanics and blacks. But the majority, um, your article stated that there were 60 percent of their workforce were whites and 30 percent were Asians. And that resulted in Google essentially making headlines for having a white male problem, if you will. But OFCCP doesn't necessarily jump to those conclusions when the EEO1 report comes. Can you sort of expound upon that? Certainly. The way OFCCP looks at EEO1 data, it basically gets it in. They get the report from the EEOC and they use it for a number of reasons. One, the main use that they have for it is when they compile their list of contractors that they're going to do a compliance evaluation of, meaning they're going to send out a compliance officer and check or you know, get the information in from those companies and check to see whether or not they're in compliance with the laws enforced by OFCCP. They use different metrics based on the EEO1. It doesn't stay the same all the time. I mean, there have been different points in its history where, say, they'll get the EEO1 report in and maybe they'll get contractors They'll select randomly because they have some reason for that. Or they may have a threshold that the contractor has to meet certain thresholds, and those will be the ones that are prioritized. So they basically use that data to figure out where they could best put their resources in terms of scheduling contractors. That's what they mainly do with it. And it doesn't mean that those contractors are all out of compliance. It just means that, you know, they got the kind of numbers that for the OFCCP, at least their experience is that that's probably a more fruitful place to go and look to see if there's uh, any problems with compliance in other places. So it's not data about who came in and applied for a job. It's data about who happens to already be in the workforce of that employer. And the other thing that OF does with it sometimes, uh, OFCCP that is, we used to call it OF all the time to sure. get to the CCP part. <laughs> but <laughs> what they also do is and from time to time they may do studies uh, trying to figure out how certain industries are, are faring when it comes to diversity of their incumbent workforce. or when they Back when they had the EEO survey in uh, Shirley Wilshire's years when they were working on their own kind of survey, they uh, hired some contractors to look at EEO1 data to try to figure out what was the best way to craft the survey that they were planning on doing. So they may use it for those kinds of purposes. But they don't look at it as being proof positive of anything, really. Sure. It's just you know, there's enough of a change or enough of imbalance here that it's worth us possibly prioritizing this company for scheduling, which is a whole different thing than coming to conclusions based on the EEO1 data. So the OSCCP will then take this data and use it in, like you said, construction of their selection system. And then basically what, come up with a list of companies possibly up for review over a certain period of time? Is that where the information is going? Yeah, well, what they do is they get the report in, and then whatever their metric is for that year, and like I said, it changes, and they don't usually communicate to the field exactly what the formula was, but they'll apply some kind of formula to this data, and that's the basis upon which they'll generate the list. The lists then go out to the field, and the field has to schedule those employers in the order received, uh, you know, unless there's some, you know, unless it's gone out of business or there's some, you know, excuse there, but they have to go, you know, in order down the list in terms of conducting reviews. Another way that the EO1 gets used in the review process is once the uh, particular employer is scheduled, they'll send they'll be you know sent out a scheduling letter, and among the things that they have to you know provide is their EO1 data, and the the compliance officer is supposed to look at the last three years of EO1 data to see what direction 
the demographics of the company are going. So they'll look to see whether they're increasing the number of women or whether they're increasing the number of minorities or the number of non-minorities. So, you know, kind of see if there is any evidence of a trend. Like over the last several years, has the overall population been going down? They have less and less incumbents. Or is it going up? What, is, you know, what groups do those uh, incumbent employees belong to? So it's used at the very beginning. It's not something where they look at the EO1 data and say, okay, I know something definitive about whether or not this company is in compliance. That it's just I kind of like to give them a context. Is this a company that's increasing these populations or decreasing? But in order to really do an investigation, they have to find out why the numbers look the way that they do. They can't just say, oh, because these numbers look this way, you necessarily have a white male problem. Sure, sure. All right. In the article, you say, you know, Google did not want their information released, but then they ended up putting it on their website and sharing it. And then they had a statement in there saying, you know, it's something that they're, they're not where they need to be as far as diversity goes, but they're working on it. What are the pros and cons of voluntarily releasing that EEO1 data? Well, I would say there's a, there's a number of different things to look at. There were co- other companies that uh, were asked to where the EEO1 data was sought at the same time that this EEO1 data was sought from Google. And some of those companies uh, freely released the data. Some of them, they, they may have put in a FOIA request. When they put in a FOIA request, which is a Freedom of Information Act request, to the Department of Labor, the Department of Labor then goes to the possessor of the information in this case, the companies whose data we're talking about, and ask them, do they have an objection to release? Some of the companies had objections and others did not. So if there was no objection to release, then the the data would have gone out. And one of the notable things, because Google said no, is that when Google changed its mind and said yes, then all of a sudden all eyes are now trained on Google and its data in a way that is not trained on those who just gave it up. They want to know what was Google trying to keep... (laughs) Right. And that's one of the things I thought was kind of interesting is in a way, because they objected initially and then did this almost mea culpa reversal of a position, it creates you know, the impression that they've just seen the light or something, you know. Sure. <laughs> but what is, you know, from, from my perspective, some of the things, if you put it out there, they, they're arguing when they ask not to have it released that somehow it's going to hurt them commercially. They're going to be in a, you know, a less competitive position some kind of way, or it's going to somehow hurt the business that they're in, or ha- you know, it affects some commercial interest that they have. And those are you know, the kinds of reasons that would have been put up. And, and if you have enough information to supply the Department of Labor that they uh, you know, accept your argument, then they will agree not to release what, you know, the information that was requested. And in this case, apparently the Department of Labor agreed with Google initially that it didn't have to have this data released. But then there's a lot of external pressure on these companies to make this data available. And I think at, over time, apparently the people at Google decided that, wait a minute, why are we really objecting to the release of this data? Maybe this is what we need, is to, is to have an open public conversation about our demographics. And so, you know, coming to, I guess, that conclusion, they put it out there. The upside of putting it out there is that, you know, you can start to have this conversation. I think the downside is that people don't always understand what conclusions are really legitimate to draw from the data and which ones are too much. For example, there are some comparisons that were put out there, uh, you know, about Google. I I was thinking of there was one where it talks about the Google and the compared to the other S&P 500 companies. Well, if you look at the S&P 500, they're not all in tech. They're not all in this high-tech Google world. They're, some of them are selling jewelry. Some of them are selling clothes. Some sure. of them are selling, you know, something that's completely unrelated to the kind of employees that would be working at Google. So when you're looking at their, you know, the relative presence or absence of certain demographic groups, really can you compare 
you know, the jewelry business to the high-tech business. I, I don't think so. kind of harkens back to the discussion we had over the last three weeks about similarly situated. You want to have somebody who you would reasonably expect to have similar outcomes. So you would probably want to find a company that's a competitor to Google that's in the same business and see how well are they doing relative to those kinds of companies, not how well they're doing relative to some company that's in a completely different arena. You know, it may be that the, the supply of people coming through with the skill sets is just a different demographic than the supply of people coming through to, to design clothes or whatever. So, you know, I, I do think that one of the, the risks that you have when, the, when that information is put out there, especially if it's not accompanied by, you know, a lot of details of how to look at this, is that people may leap to the wrong conclusion. You know, there was one person that just said that, well, they're just lazy and right. that, that people run into this discrimination when they come in. Well, you know, if you have actual examples of people who apply to Google and, and this happened to them, I think it's a bridge too far. I, I, don't, I really don't see how you can come from the demographics to, you know, these people have these bad motives or they're doing these awful things. If the agency were looking at it, they wouldn't come to the, well, the real elephant in the room is the sheer laziness of hiring managers or racism and sexism is pervasive. What they would simply do is look to see, okay, let's see why we have the numbers the way they, they are. Did you even have the applicants? If you don't have the applicants, is there, you know, why don't you have the applicants? Was it something the company did or is it just that they're not out there? You know, these are the kinds of questions that the government would be looking at and they wouldn't be able to draw these kinds of broad conclusions that you see in the press based on, you know, the fact that Google has this, you know, imbalance in its course. And similarly, there was like the, the, the almost like the, the defenders of Google who were saying, well, Google has 61% white, but the country at large has 66% white employees in, the, in companies. Well, it's got the same problem, I think, as the comparison with the S&P 500. I mean, right. all the companies in the U.S. are not in the high-tech business. It really is kind of beside the point to say everybody, when that particular sector has its own types of employees that it's looking for. It's not looking for someone to be a lumberjack. It's looking for someone who can understand the business that Google is in. When you put this data out there, it does kind of create a public conversation, I guess, if you do it the way Google did it. I don't know how much of a public conversation it was for those that voluntarily released it, but if you put it out there and, and you're, you know, look like you're under some compulsion to do so, you know, a lot of times it's easy for the cameras to be trained on the imbalances and to draw all these wild conclusions about why uh, things are as they are. And fortunately, I think that's not how actual investigations are conducted. So if you do decide to put out your data voluntarily, I would suggest that somehow you have to provide the context because it's not going to be immediately understood, I think, by the general public. Yeah. So companies sort of have some sort of onus to educate the public that, you know, maybe the racial and gender imbalances you state in your article that might be in the workforce is not necessarily their discrimination in hiring. Right. I mean, because actually the EEO one day doesn't really talk about hiring. It talks about who's there. Right. And we don't know if people were there and left, in which case maybe you have a retention problem rather than a hiring problem. Or maybe it is that when you look at the kinds of skill sets that you're in search of, you're not finding them. I noticed with the Google data, the imbalances, say, for example, with females was not through every single type of category. There, there were tech and leadership. So maybe they, you know, look at the feeder pools for those areas. Who is coming through with, and what, first of all, what kind of skills do you need and who's coming through with those skills? Are there actually people that are in the reasonable work area where they've come? I mean, with, if this is a job where you fly across the country, you may look nationally, but you know, if, they, if it's a job where you would only go like a couple of counties over, you may look within that area, but you're looking at people with those skills who you know, are the workforce that you really could have drawn from. And it has to be people who are interested, you know, that, that 
come to do those kinds of jobs. So you've got to find out who's, uh, who's available, who would travel to, to take that job, and who has the skills that Google is looking for. How are they faring with respect to that group? Now, it may be, and I think probably, uh, you know, looking at some of this information about the struggles they have in, uh, in this area, maybe they're, part of their problem is that they're not getting the flow of candidates. And you may have to look at what is, you know, what's the root cause of that. You know, is it that we don't hire people, and, but they're knocking on our doors, or is it that we don't have enough people knocking on our doors to begin with, or there's not enough of a workforce out there in these different demographics that have the skills we're looking for? And those are some of the things I think Google would have to look at, you know, as it's trying to figure out how this picture came to be. One of the things I'm reminded of, they also used to say with the affirmative action, is that you were trying to attain but not necessarily maintain a certain balance. Sure. Uh, which to me kind of has gone a little bit, I mean, it's said, it's still, I guess, the law, but in a way, because you're looked at every, you know, you're, you're periodically looked at this as data, you may have attained it, but if you show up, I mean, a couple of years ago, your EEO1s were fine, but if your EEO1s are out of whack now, they're kind of looking for you to, have to you know, perhaps be at the top of this list or somewhere higher up in the list to be reviewed. The failure to maintain it, you know, that their questions get drawn there too. So I don't know about this attain, not maintain thing. It seems a little bit of maintenance involved, but <laughs> uh, technically you're only supposed to have to attain a, you know, a certain balance. So the fact that you have an imbalance shouldn't in and of itself mean you're in violation because you're not even supposed to have affirmative action to keep a ratio. Right. that gets in the area of quotas. Then, you know, I always have to have this number of women, this number of minorities, or else. You know, that's not the way enforcement is supposed to operate. And so I think you have to be very careful when you're looking at the demographics of an employer in judging that either they're not engaging in affirmative action or that they're uh, discriminating, especially the, that they're discriminating against uh, those particular groups of people. So, you know, you can, I think it, it probably Google wishes that it had disclosed right. stuff voluntarily because then it wouldn't be the subject of all these discussions. But on the other hand, I guess the upside of the disclosure is that you do basically invite the public into the discussion about what is it that's causing us to have a workforce that looks like it does. And that's kind of what I think is the motive from these people that are going out and trying to get the data from the, from the government about the demographics of these companies. There's a perceived whiteness to Silicon Valley that people are concerned about. Sure. And so they want to get all this data to find out, you know, what's going on, who's hiring whom, you know, is there something that uh, the public can do to incentivize the companies to engage in behaviors that perhaps will change the face of this demographic. And I think the underlying assumption is that all race groups, all genders are going to be equally interested in all professions. There's no reason sure. why they would be less of one than the other. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I just don't know because right. you know, there are sectors that seem to uh, attract more uh, people from certain uh, ethnic groups. Like in this particular case, Google had a, a more than a sufficient number of Asians relative to the available workforce. So, you know, they, they didn't seem to have a problem attracting and retaining Asian employees, but they seem to have a problem, you know, attracting black or Hispanic employees. So I don't know if it's that there is more of an interest or more of a preparation or if it's just that they don't know how to do outreach. You, you know, you just don't sure. even know what it is. But, you know, the assumption that the imbalance means something comes from an underlying assumption that in the absence of uh, any forces working against it, 
all the groups and all the genders and all the ethnicities would be equally interested in all the jobs. Out there. Right. Well, and that brings me us to our last point here. Do, I mean, do you have any final thoughts on maybe what contractors and subcontractors can do in regards to maybe just sharing this information or maybe educating, you know, the public on, you know, what the imbalance might mean or just in general for those uh, listeners out there right now? I'm thinking a couple of things. One, that if you do want to release the data, and I know I don't have any objections one way or the other about that, but if you want to release the data, I think you need to release it a little bit differently, I would say, than Google did, where it's basically we were so wrong for keeping this data. You know, you want to release the data, explain why you want to release the data, what the data really means, so you can have the data put in context in a way that's not going to create the inference that somehow you've been forced. Now, if you put the data out, like, right away after this whole Google kerfuffle, (laughs) you may look like... You just, uh, you know, felt like you had to do it because you were, com- you, know, you were compelled, which, you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. But if you do put it out, I think you need to put it out and help help the public understand what exactly it is you're telling them with that data. Otherwise, you do wind up, I think, having a, more than a few people make assumptions about the data and about your workforce that may not be actually legitimate. The other thing, I think, is to set expectations about what may or may not happen now that this data is out there. One of the things I think Google is going to find uh, is that people who are focused on this now because of the change in position will be looking to see something different happen there. They're going to be looking to see, you know, did the, did the uh, company somehow increase the representations now that this is all out here in the public? And it may not be as easy as the public might think to do something about it. Now, people threw out some suggestions of things that maybe Google could do, and the suggestions might be pretty good. I mean, I don't have a problem with any suggestions. They're saying perhaps instead of just focusing on computer science graduates, maybe you need to look at some other characteristics or uh, traits that would indicate that you could potentially be successful in the work that Google does, or getting into the high schools and funding programs that introduce people to computer science. The other day I saw an ad on TV trying to talk kids into being engineers. We never saw those ads when I was a little kid. So maybe getting that out there so people are aware of what's going on. Those all may be pretty good ideas. The only thing I thought was interesting is that when they tell you these ideas, they never really give you an example of where, okay, here was a Thai tech company that did all of this, and now here's what they've got going. Sure. So, you know, we really, I think people need theory. additional. <laughs> yeah, it's all theory. And, you know, it's, you know, it sounds good, but if it, you know, it's like the, I was reading the other day about uh, losing weight and eating breakfast, and for years, you've got to have your breakfast. Right. And then they do a study that says six one half doesn't the other. Sounds I read good, that same necessary. article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it may have sounded good, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it works. Right. So I think that there needs to be some additional uh, research into whether this stuff is worth somewhere. And, the, you know, another thing I, I saw, the, the, one of the people who were in charge of the EEO at, at Google was looking for ways to promote women, for example, and they were saying that if they sent out uh, information about women being less likely to put themselves forward for promotion and not long after that put out information about promotions that were available, they got more people, more women putting themselves in for the promotion than if they didn't. But when they forgot to put it out, the numbers went back down. So, you know, it, it, you may do these efforts, but it might have to be an ongoing effort for all I know to, to keep incentivizing people to do behaviors that they wouldn't ordinarily do, like apply for positions that they might not, you know, uh, initially think of. So I think one of the things companies have to do is manage public expectations that this doesn't mean now that I put this data out here that, you know, a year from now, I'm going to have a totally different composition for my workforce. Because I do think sometimes the expectations can be a little unrealistic. At the end of the day, you can make these remove the barriers, make it inviting for a person to come, you know, try to have support when they do come, try to look at retention, make sure people aren't leaving after they come. But it's the individual does make a decision what kind of career they want 
and where they want to go and whether they want to work in high tech. So there's, there's some things that are within the control of the company and other things that just aren't. I mean, the school systems, they can try to help in certain schools, but they can't be at every single school. So right. you know, they may not be able to get their message to all of the, the, the different people that potentially could change their, uh, the trajectory of their future careers to be something that would land them at Google. So I think you have to manage explaining what the data means and help people to understand that this is not something that's going to necessarily turn around overnight. I was trying to see if I could find any information about the companies that voluntarily disclosed, but no one talked about whether they had a better or a less good demographic now since they had voluntarily disclosed either. So I'm, I'm not sure what the real world change is going to be because we've got the data out there. But I do think the more people that put the data voluntarily out there, probably the less individual attention will get, public attention span being what it is. You know, if it's the norm that this data is on the website, unless you're in this area and, you know, this is what you do, you're probably not going to be trolling all these websites to, you know, make an issue at every company. But then you may have, you know, may have shareholders and other people who would look at this and decide, you know, they want to support companies perhaps that are more diverse or, or you know, something like that. So it, it, it could have some commercial repercussions. Well, on that note, I think that wraps up today's show nicely on government compliance. Thank you, Sandy. We do appreciate your thoughts about this topic. And continue listening to localjobnetwork.com radio for your latest employment-related programs. And if you have comments, suggestions, or questions, please email us at ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. I'm Jacqueline Peterson for LJN Radio. Thanks for listening.